Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Hello, Matt. You've had your ears lowered. You had your hair cut this morning? I have had a beautiful haircut this morning. How are you? See, I noticed these things. I noticed these Oh, thank things. you. I feel so special now. <laughs> How's your morning been? All right, other than getting yes, your haircut? Fine. How's traffic? Been a no traffic, just a busy week before before we've stopped for Christmas. Gosh, it's getting close, and isn't it? And go on holidays. This is our last podcast before 2023. Really? Yeah. There you go. Show, well, so much, show so much I know. Depends what I've got in store for you over the Christmas holidays. <laughs> <laughs> and today we are joined by Dr. Kate Jameson, yes. all the way from Western Australia in Australia. So for anyone that doesn't know, <laughs> that sounded really silly, didn't it? So Western Australia, so Australia's massive continent. Um, you're about a five or six hour flight away from where Jake and yeah, I are. So we're hours. situated on the on the east coast and in Sydney and you're all the way on the other side. So lots of desert between us actually. And I was there a few weeks ago. So unfortunately we didn't get to catch up because I didn't no. didn't really, uh, we, we hadn't, hadn't started talking. Hadn't, so anyway, next time for sure. But um, interesting episode today because we've been talking a lot about people starting their businesses, struggles with their businesses and I think it's been really helpful for people who are starting out or having some challenges in, in what they're doing. But we're joined by Kate today from the Youth Lab and you're running a pretty big operation, a pretty full-scale operation over there. So we thought yeah, we'd, we'd- certainly grown. <laughs> yeah. So we thought we'd take a, a sort of put our, our toe in the water at the other end of the pool, which is uh, big business, expansion. You seem to have a lot of business principles dialed in. So showing people the other end of the spectrum, um, we thought could be useful. Yeah, so chapter five of yes. the business of injecting. Kate, did you want to introduce yourself to our lovely listeners who may not have come across you? They might be, living, they might be no. listening in Peru or somewhere. <laughs> I know, we're, we're sort of in the most isolated city of the world, so it's not surprising they might not know who I am. <laughs> um, my name is Dr. Kate Jameson. I am a cosmetic physician and multi-clinic owner. My background is general practice, so I hold a fellowship of the Royal Australian College of GPs as well as um, some of the cosmetic colleges. So I, I studied cosmetic medicine as an intern in 2012, so I'm still quite a baby doctor. I'm, um, I've only been practicing for 10 years um, and opened my clinic with my now husband in 2018. So we started up with a sort of a single practitioner operation um, in, a, in a beautiful building in West Perth here in WA. And we since scaled to our third location this year. So we're now three busy clinics um, with a team of 35 people. So wow. yeah, that's just a little bit about me. I don't know if you've, we've, we've actually got a link. One of your um, receptionists, Claire, she came from my I clinic. Was, I know. Yes, yeah. I was going to say that to you, Jake. You actually spoke to John as a reference for her. I did. And we can ago. come into your processes of how you recruit and stuff, but I, I was yeah, really we're impressed. To, we're starting to poach from over east. <laughs> <laughs> so is this she was so She's traumatized a, yeah. I'm dealing with yeah, she had yeah, to yeah. move to the exactly, other side yeah, of the country. Was... Claire actually moved for love. <laughs> All right. She did. She moved she for love. Did, and, yes. and I'm happy to say it's still it's still going on. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, yes, a, a wonderful asset to our team over at our Claremont Clinic. Yeah. And apparently you listen to the podcast. So how did you I come do, across yes. us? 
oh, I think it must have been COVID. It must have been, was it 2020 to lockdown? Yeah. And you, just, you did some webinars and um, I had my I had my son at that point. So I was in that newborn bubble in lockdown and, you know, needed to fill my time, um, really. So I started to listen to the podcast. I've never been into podcasts, really. I've got quite a short attention span, but it was mm-hmm. more for, you know, those long walks with the baby. Um, since we've opened up our June Club Clinic, which for those who aren't from WA, it's a bit of a distance. So it's about a 20, 30-minute drive for me. So now that's my Friday morning drive to work listening to the <laughs> podcast. And it's just it's just wonderful that it's, you know, I've really got a lot out of listening to Inside Aesthetics and especially the Patreon program recently as well. So, oh, thank you. Yeah, nice yeah, little well shout done, out there for the Patreon. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, just a reminder, you're one of the only patrons who aren't in our WhatsApp group. So we, we I must... I am in the WhatsApp group. Oh, you I are? Am. I'm just a lurker. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I'm like that too sometimes. Fair enough. I'm a lurker. So all right. I, and same thing with Facebook groups. I never actually comment. I'm just like, oh my God, they're so overwhelming, all these messages. So yeah, I'll, I'll start to, I'll interact a little bit more. No, it's forward. all good. I just want to make sure you, you're onboarded. I'm there. Yeah. So um, maybe let's start off by talking about, well, you've told us all about yourself. You've come from a GP background. You started looking into cosmetics early on in your medical career. So talk to us about the youth lab and where did the idea come from? Just take us through the process of conceptualization well, to actually having a physical clinic because we've got lots of questions, yeah. but that, that's kind of maybe start there. <laughs> and if I could just add to that, you know, we've had a GP on recently who quite, I, I guess, rightly, and many GPs in, in this position, they sort of feel like they're dabbling on the side of mm. GP. So how did you go from dabbling and maybe working in someone else's clinic to thinking, I want my own clinic? I want to do this myself, yeah. Just firstly, it's not the youth lab, it's youth lab. No, the no, the oh, well, there calls us youth well, lab or the youth labs. It's just youth lab. Well, I guess fa- Facebook dropped the there, so it's good enough. <laughs> it's good enough yes, for youth lab, exactly. it's good enough for Facebook. Um, so yeah, I, I'm probably similar to you, Jake. I was hospital based, and I um, I remember doing a Botox course when I was an intern. I was doing a psychiatry term, and I was really bored. Yeah. I was like, what can I learn? What can I study? So I contact, I found this course, and I remember Allegan sending me these um, manila folders full of studies about Botox. And they said, read this and come to the two-hour training course. Yeah. So I read all these old articles and I went to this two-hour training course and I said, great, you can have an account. You can inject Botox. And I was like, what is this? I've got no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> so I sort of left it alone for about 12 months. And at that point, um, I'd made the decision that I wanted to go into general practice purely for lifestyle reasons. I, I struggled quite a lot in the hospital system. I was doing a lot of critical care terms, which I really loved, but personally I you know was going through some things with my family I lost my mum I was very Mm. much like no this is not the life I want to live I want to you know control my own hours and work within the community and get to know my patients so I started GP training and luckily my first term um, I was in quite a low socioeconomic area but the clinic had a laser clinic attached to it with an amazing cosmetic physician who was really into his lasers doing lots of tattoo removal who sort of took me under his wing a little bit um, and sort of helped to sort of reignite that passion for the injectables. And I ended up doing some training in dermal science. I did a diploma in dermal science whilst studying for my GP exams and got really excited about the skin, more so from a, um, you know, that healthy skin perspective, not so much from a dermatology perspective. I was like, there are these treatments that, you know, skin needling, microdermabrasion, PRP at that point. I was like, this this is really cool. Mm. Um, so it was more of that personal interest for me. And then I started injecting tox um, at the clinic a little bit, um, moved on to another GP practice um, in the Perth CBD. And at that point, I'd met my now husband and would talk a lot about how much I loved cosmetics. 
And he's like, well, why don't you do something about it? I was like, no, 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 I've got my GP exams. You know, I'm a doctor. This is silly. All mm. the usual arguments we, we tell ourselves. Um, and luckily enough, John's background was in digital marketing and he he knew, I think he saw something in me that I was probably quite marketable as a young doctor, very, very passionate. It was before Instagram really took off. So we sort of made the decision that let's give this a go. Um, I built a website through Squarespace. Um, I made an Instagram page and I started to reach out to like local salons and spas and start doing mobile clinics. And it was a really, really, really slow burn. So I'd go to the, you know, mobile clinic at the beauty salon and the shopping centre and sit there for six hours and maybe see one patient. Yeah. Um, But I sort of knew that this is what I wanted to do and so I stuck stuck with it um, to the point where I, you know, did all my training with lots of the filler companies and was doing a lot through my GP rooms and eventually started contracting at an established cosmetic clinic here in Perth and that's where it all sort of took off. Um, I was getting really busy, um, seeing lots of patients. I ended up cutting my GP hours to about part-time and then doing part-time injecting. Um, and then from there, the idea of Ublab was born. You raised an interesting point during that little soliloquy about how it all started, <laughs> which was you it's a slow burn and you were sometimes mm-hmm. sitting there for six hours oh, yeah. and seeing one patient. And I just wanted to highlight that because these are conversations that I'm personally having with injectors and it's something mm. that's very common even when I was owning clinics and we're talking to new nurses and doctors that were coming to work within my business was it takes time. And I think there is a little bit of a perception that you should be busy and successful straight away. And perhaps that's, well, I guess that's a function of up until recently, there's almost been more demand than there has been supply. So more people wanting treatments that have been suppliers to a certain extent. And so when you look at any other business outside of aesthetics, whether it be like retail fashion or food or whatever it is, most businesses don't turn a profit for two years. Mm. And so, yeah. in my experience is that today, starting as an injector in a reasonable location, <laughs> you're going to be looking at at least two years of hard work before you actually build up a consistent, reliable calendar of patients. So, I just mm-hmm. wanted to highlight that point because I think a lot of people are going through that mental struggle of, gosh, I'm sitting here and wasting my time. Where are all my patients? So, how, yeah, did, you, yeah. how did you mentally deal with that? And were you prepared for that I- kind of wait time? I think when I was starting out, I was very lucky in that I did a lot of it through my GP room. So I had a really supportive practice. Um, And I know, you know, to me, it wasn't an ideal environment for cosmetic patients, but I had already established quite a loyal patient base. And so they were happy to see me there. And, you know, if you're quite, I I mix my days up. And um, if I was quiet from a cosmetic perspective, a lot of the time I'd see my GP presentations and the clinics I organized through the salons and spas, I just sort of used that time um, to not only study um, for my GP exams and also um, for the numerous cosmetic diplomas I was doing at the time, but I used it that time to build my brand. Um, I was very lucky and very fortunate to have started, it was Dr. Kate Aesthetics at the time, um, when Instagram was really new and I... I did a lot of educational content on the platform. I probably wrote three or four blog articles a week. So I'd use that downtime to write and to learn. And I'd, you know, I'd post blogs about lip enhancement or about, you know, aging of the face and what happens in your 20s, 30s, 40s, like informative posts, which I'd then post on my website to build up um, that organic reach. And I think it was just, I, you know, 
focusing on those small things initially, not only filling my time and um, being proactive, but that's how I managed to build a brand in the in the early stages of my career. Um, you know, that website was ended up outranking lots of the the well established clinics in Perth, and I was just a sole trader at that point. Um, that being said, it's it, I came around at that time before you know social media was completely saturated with cosmetic mm-hmm. pages. Yeah. And did your then boyfriend, now husband, have anything to do in the in the background with the digital marketing? Then he used to. He was still working full time, and he he sort of really educated me a lot um, on SEO. I remember he used to make me do link building. He'd be like, "Right, this is what link building is. You have to go into all these online directories and put your post up." Yeah, and he made me do it, so that was fun. Yeah. Um, but he he taught me a lot about that organic reach with Google. You know, optimizing our content. Um, you know, reaching out to new publications to yeah. post articles and things like that. And now your business partners. How's your marriage? How's that? Like, how's that going? Well, we only just got married, so <laughs> oh, okay. too early to tell. All right. <laughs> so early days. Watch this space. We'll check back in in two years. We'll see. We'll see how it's going. <laughs> Fair enough. But we and, managed to work really well together so far. And can you just ground us in the the market of Western Australia? Because I know it was up until fairly recently you didn't have as many chains or I don't know if you had any chains mm. up until what five years ago I think it was roughly because there were differences yeah, in the laser ago, laws I feel like when New Club opened from memory there was just one chain here yep. yeah. and they didn't like it wasn't obviously focused on laser hair removal because our laser laws changed yeah. so when we opened the clinic, um, lasers were doctor only, yes, um, which was a huge barrier for entry for clinics because lots of doctors don't want to spend their time yep. doing hair removal um, or doing tattoo removal. It's, it's cumbersome. It's quite a boring procedure to perform. Um, and so prices were exorbitant. So um, I used to have lots of patients fly over east for their tattoo removal because it was cheaper than paper plants and accommodation. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, laser laws then changed. Uh, so dermal practitioners, dermal therapists, clinicians and nurses could um, operate – um, class three and four lasers. So that brought in the chain clinics. Yeah. Um, and, and with the chain clinics, obviously, comes the their injectables and the discounted injectable side of their businesses, and they're just popping up everywhere. Yeah. So we've got Silk, LCA, um, Australian Skin Clinics, Clear Silk, all, um, Clear Skin, all those ones yeah. as well. I've kind of had some interesting thoughts around chain clinics, and I know that there's people who are, love them, they some people hate them. It's quite a polarizing topic when you talk about chain clinics. But mm. in some ways, if I'm looking at it from, if I was in your position, Kate, and looking at someone that's trying to open up more of a, I know the word specialist is kind of frowned upon, but for lack of a better term, like a clinic that specializes in a more boutique experience, perhaps more advanced treatments, looking at biostimulators mm. and things that those chain clinics don't do. In some ways, I think that the chain clinics are great for just increasing awareness that mm. these treatments exist and starting to get people to become comfortable with them. But then mm. as a clinic that doesn't need to see hundreds of patients a day, you almost the chain clinics are almost filtering out all the patients that you potentially don't want. So oh, it increases it, incre- exactly. it increases patient awareness, but they're taking all the potential tire kickers and the people that have unrealistic expectations, the patients mm-hmm. are not going to mm-hmm. follow your post-care instructions, the ones that might lie to you about you know, trying to have a baby or you get all these sorts of weird sort of patients that sort of flow through some of these clinics. So I've just sort of come upon, across that thought really is just like in some ways they help. Yeah, that, that's my experience. But mm. what do you think about that, Kate? I agree 110%. Um, we don't generally see patients who have come from chain clinics. Maybe every so often they might say, oh, I went to XYZ clinic 
um, you know, I didn't get the results I was after. I just couldn't obtain any follow-up or I had a complication and they didn't have a doctor to help me. Yeah. So every so often we do see those patients, but it's almost, you know, for a business like ours, which is, you know, positioned a lot higher in the market, um, our prices are quite prohibitive for those people who do seek that more of that commoditized type treatment. Um, I don't think the people who who are driven by, you know, cost per unit or cheap skin treatments uh, would be interested in our clinic anyway. Um, I was a bit concerned when um, LCA bought out their BBL treatment, yep. which is broadband light. We have the site on BBLs in our clinic, so I was a bit worried about that um, in terms of the lower price point. But, again, that hasn't really affected us either. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's one thing to have an amazing piece of equipment, but you still mm. no, no, need to learn how to maximise it. And use that yeah, equipment. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You think these are these are franchises, and they're run yep. by franchisees who might not have any clinical experience. They could have been an ex clinic manager who's bought in, and they're essentially, you know, running their businesses according to what head office tells them to do. So they're yep. limited in terms of what settings they can use in their equipment. They're limited by how many what cosmetic procedures they perform. Like I know some aren't allowed to do things like temples or tear troughs. Yep. Like it's very limiting. So yep. for a patient that wants a holistic approach. Uh, it's not the clinic for them. Yeah. And, and also I think, and sorry, Jake, I know you want to jump in, is that um, as time has progressed and nurses and doctors have been brave enough and acquired the skills to go and up, open up their own practices, you're seeing that these chain clinics are losing a lot of their experienced injectors. So mm-hmm. they've almost become yeah. like a training ground for people that are just entering to the mar- entering the market and gathering their skills. Mm-hmm. So I think in some ways they've done the industry a little bit of a favour If when you look at it in – what do you think, Jake? I mean, yeah, I agree. Um Sadly, the mentality that I experience when I speak to injectors, and and maybe I was one of them to an extent, is it's a bit of a churn and burn sort of experience. You you get a lot of numbers under your belt, you do it for two, three, four years, and then you go, oh my God, I'm driving myself insane. But also, I lack the control to take it to a higher level or do more advanced areas or, you know, refer to a team that do things that I think they need. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And just my disclaimer, I did own chain clinics. I am responsible for part of the issue and apologies for anyone that is an aberration that is running a high quality (laughs) clinic that has experienced injectors, but I'm talking in in general terms. If you sort of looked at it on mass that I think I'm pretty accurate with what I'm saying, but apologies Mm -hmm. to anyone that's outside of that, that uh, general. uh, Yeah. uh, And by the way, we're not bagging chains per se, because they gave me all that experience, but you know, mm. there, there's a point where I think you step off and say, okay, yeah. I'm ready for the next level. Yeah. Um, I wanted yeah. to ask you, Kate, so there may be GPs or doctors or, or even nurses who go from that hospital background or, or general practice mm. background, and then they go, oh, I'm a business owner now. So <laughs> did you have any training or was it, you know, learning on the job? Everything was learned on the job. I've got no business background at all. Um, I think I was always quite entrepreneurial as a kid. Um, my dad was a small business owner. Um, so I've always been sort of interested in the business of medicine. And I, I got to the point in my GP career with my practice, I was very, very close with them. I actually worked there as a medical student. Mm. So I think I was up there for about 12 years or what. I was like, do I partner up? Do I join into this clinic? Um, or do I do something by myself and branch out on my own? And so that was always in the back of my mind that I was going to be in business in some way. In terms of training, though, John and I have learned as we go. Um, very, very, you know, we focus on sound business fundamentals. We are extremely strategic. Um, you know, everything is well-researched, very, very thorough. We, I think our business plan for the original clinic took six to nine months mm-hmm. to really build and develop. So it was very well thought out process. And yep. then, you know, from there as we've grown nice and organically, 
we've learned on the job. Yeah. And the mindset of most medical practitioners or nurses when it comes to business is to almost put their hands up and look the other direction and focus on what they're comfortable doing, which is which more is the clinical yeah, well, yeah. The, cl- the clinical side of, of the business. So mm. what was your mentality like? How did you as someone that's been clinically trained to think with a medical mind to then mm. be confronted with a skill set that you knew nothing about that I'm assuming is quite confronting because you've become so good at something else and then being faced with something mm. you have no idea about? How did you sort of combat that natural inclination that I think most medical people do is to sort of put their hand up and say, that's too hard basket, I'm just going to inject and they never really focus on that side. So how did you how did you deal with how did you deal with that? Because it's something that most medical professionals don't and can't do. Yeah, and I think I, you know I have to preface that with I had a business partner from the get go, who we were both personally invested in yeah. the business. So I, I was very lucky in that John was able to manage that side of things initially. I think had John not been in the picture, I'd have you flat anyway it would have just taken a much much longer time to build what it is and it might still be a single clinic yeah um i think lots you know lots of these boutique cosmetic clinics who are run by a doctor are very very successful and very profitable um but it's also because we're in that growth industry that i think you can make lots of mistakes and still be successful Mm -hmm. um I, when we started, I was injecting, you know, five, six days a week and I loved what I did. I was all about my patients. Um, I was very, very passionate about being the best possible injector. I think there might've been a bit of ego involved as well. My, you know, my goal was um, I'm going to be on stage. I'm going to be a KOL. This is me, 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 um, you know, building my brand around that. But very, very quickly, I realized that running a a small team and running a clinic, um, you know, you need to focus on on other things and I think because both John and I were so so invested in the startup I immediately took the step back and um, reassessed my values and what I really wanted from the business and I think I fell in love with running a clinic um, it's, it's been really interesting I've transitioned from you know full-time injecting to injecting 12 hours a week now and my my greatest love is now youth lab and the clinic not so much being a doctor and that takes a lot for me to say that so and Mm. I feel constant guilt about that I'm like I've you know spent my whole life studying medicine and um giving my all to my patients but yeah see Jake there's a hope the clinic wins there's hope for you yet we can turn you into a a budding Richard Branson (laughs) Uh, Sloan Empire (laughs) (laughs) I've got a question so you've you've I believe you've got three now you're you're potentially even going to expand further but what did the first clinic look like like what was the premises did you buy it did you rent it where did the name come from you know all that vision so the name john named youth lab we were um i remember we were down south in the southwest of western australia in like a cabin in the middle of nowhere going for a bushwalk he's like youth lab so he takes he named it i really like it that's a good name yeah i try to um we our premises in west perth is nearly five years old it's the you know, the clinic we have now is the same clinic that we opened. It's a beautiful 100-and-something-year-old heritage building. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we spent quite a bit of money on the fit-out. It was quite sort of old, run-down building when we moved in, um, located sort of in the medical hub um, of West Perth. So lots of specialist surgeons, lots of um, you know, sports medicine, that sort of thing in the area, and lots of other cosmetic clinics. 
Um, it's very, you know, it's it's sort of a mix between the old and the new. Mm-hmm. So a bit like, you know, one of our patients coming in, you know, yeah. leave, come in looking old, leave looking nice <laughs> and young and fresh. <laughs> um, very, very high-end fit out. So we, you know, we were probably one of the first, I think, that had that sort of high-end design um, really focused on the, the, the actual fit out. Um, we've done some renovations since, um, constantly refreshing it. And yeah, that's that's our original clinic. Yeah. So you you spoke about high end fit out. Obviously, costs mm. costs a lot of money. So a lot of people might be asking, well, how much should I allow for when I want to start a business? Because it's not just about the fit out. You've got to worry about opening stock. You've got all of mm-hmm. your equipment, computers, in, like IT infrastructure. I'm assuming yeah. you probably. Well, I'm assuming, maybe I'm incorrect, that you looked at being able to float the business for a period of time with minimal income. So, sort of forecasting what you're going to be earning and making sure yeah. you guys have got enough to sort of cover wages and so on. Absolutely. So, are you happy to talk about that a little bit from a budgeting yeah, and sort course, of planning absolutely. perspective? Yeah. I mean, like I said before, we had we built our business plan for a good six to nine months. So, yeah. we had forecast, I think, from the initial clinic, I think, three years in. Yep. That, that was just factoring in a single clinic. Um, being a doctor, it's quite easy to obtain finance. Yep. Um, very, very lucky in that regard. John and I had just purchased our first home. We had nothing. We were in our late 20s, you know, not a not a penny to our, our name sort of thing, On both on very average incomes. So we obtained a business loan initially. I think our original startup and fit out was about $160,000, $170,000. Yes. Um, it's a lot. Um, do we want to translate? Sorry, do we, do we want to translate in, uh, that into pounds and you US guys dollars? You guys talking enough? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jason says we've got a lot of, <laughs> got a of listeners, so we'll just About try and translate. Ninety thousand pounds or so. Yeah, um, and that's not including we. I think we started with just basic um, skin treatments like skin needling, peels, facials. We got a hydrofacial, um, which has gone up significantly, and we also purchased the the BBL, which we obtained yep. as a separate loan. So mm-hmm. I think all. Up the first clinic was about three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, the subsequent clinics have been a lot more. Yeah. Um, you know, in the realm of five, six hundred thousand dollar startup yeah. costs. Yeah, you were almost right. It's ninety three thousand pounds <laughs> or one hundred and fifteen thousand American dollars. Yeah. It's, it's not cheap. Yeah. And were you no, ne- not cheap at all? And no. you know, it's with Youth Lab. It's our part of our client experience is our spectacular fit out. Yeah. Um, we're using an interior designer, Nicholas Gertler, who's based in Melbourne. Um, you see this sort of that continuity between the clinics. They're all very, very different, but they're all there's sort of trends and themes that run between all three of them. And it's expensive. You know, we haven't we haven't cut any costs in terms of, of our clinic fit outs yeah. and environment. Yeah. Can I ask, because obviously this isn't visual, so people might be thinking, well, what do we mean by high end? And, mm-hmm. you know, we all know, well, many of us know what a chain clinic looks like and I don't know, an average clinic, if you want to put it that way. So yeah, what, yeah. What, what, what do you mean by high end? I guess, um, you know, we're, we're threading the needle between a clinical space and a luxury spa, mm-hmm. essentially. Like people still are coming for medical procedures. They want to feel that they're in that sort of clean, hygienic medical environment. Um, so it's trying to tread that line between making sure the treatment rooms have that element of being clinical, but also very, very soft and luxurious. Um, our furnishings are very, very expensive. You know, couches, um, our reception desks are always, you know, a feature of the clinic. You walk in, you go, oh wow, that's yeah. impressive. Beautiful stones, different textures and materials, um, beautiful lighting as well. 
So it's like almost walking into a five-star hotel when you walk into one of our clinics. Yeah. And, you know, we'll come on to it, but that that's that creates the experience that is immediately, mm. like you said, you walk in and you go, okay, this is different. This is a yeah. different level. Yeah. I'm getting something else here. I think something that's annoyed lots of the reps over the years, you know, they bring in, they'll come do training sessions or you introduce a new treatment and they come with their parlor brochures yeah, and no um, those stands <laughs> and things like that. So they go straight in the bin. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it well, can look a bit crappy. Never can't it? once had any yeah. advertising material in the clinics. Yeah, that's a no go for us. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an interesting concept, isn't it? Is you're still performing medical treatments, but they're a treatment that is well, in almost all instances, um, it's not a it's not a it's not a need. It's not a requirement. You're not going to you know mm-hmm. die mm-hmm. if you don't get toxins or fillers. And so I think that it's it's a it's kind of creating that hybrid, isn't it, where you want it to still feel medical enough that you're safe and compliant and you're adhering to like sterility and aseptic technique and all that yeah. kind of stuff. But then also creating an environment where it almost primes people to um, engage in the experience and be prepared to part with reasonable sums of money. So if you think about yes, when you walk exactly. in, when you walk into, as you said, like a high end hotel, you walk into like a high end fashion store like a Chanel or Louis Vuitton, you know the way the place smells, the fix, the way that people address, the way that they speak to you, all of these things are those intangible elements that prime people to be comfortable parting with large sums of money because it's not just about the result they walk out with. It's the experience. And that's something we've spoken about Absolutely. a lot a lot on the podcast. So was that something that you inherently yeah. knew or was that just through trial and error? It's it's something inherently we we yeah. um we strive for from the get go. And you pretty much put, you know, said exactly what I was going to say in terms of every sort of little touch point is consistent throughout the clinics. So it's from language, it's presentation of the staff, it's the, you know, the warm hello to the, you know, fond farewell every single time a client walks into your lab, they'll have that same experience and and leave the clinic feeling really really special yeah and that's difficult to do sorry yeah i was gonna say did you have an external consultant who who gave you some training to impart that to your staff or not no i mean it's been quite a gradual thing and i think things have come and gone over the years as well like we we do you know we've let things slip in the past as well with you know then we bring up back more of a focus onto things like language and um the check-in process we saw external um consultants over the years but nothing consistently um, but I think John and I are both so passionate about the client experience and about our customers that it's something that we've done our own research on. Um, we talk about it day in, day out. <laughs> um, yeah. um, one of our, our team manager now, who's one of our clinic managers, comes from the modelling world. So very much about sort of personal presentation and speech and etiquette, which has been really interesting bringing that into the clinic too. Yeah. And in terms of getting an understanding of what the patient experience is like, do you have people that come through your space on a in through your spaces in, you know, periodically to go through a journey and give you feedback, like a like a secret shopper or someone? Secret that's shopping. Ooh. Yeah. Do you <laughs> do that? I want to tell all the team about our secret shoppers. Yeah, we do. Oh, it's we good. They should know. They should know they shoppers. come through. <laughs> yeah. No, they know. They know about the secret shopping. We haven't done one for a while, actually, but we yeah. certainly have implemented that in the past. It's really interesting, and it's made us change little things. Like I remember one comment once was that there was dust on the yeah. testers in the retail shelf. Yeah. So, oh, God forbid there's dust on the testers anymore. Um, <laughs> little things about, you know, ensuring that pricing's evident on the on the retail, um, you know, that the the clinic coordinator introduces themselves by name, little things like that that can sometimes get missed. Yeah. Can I ask, um, you know, maybe for people who are opening their clinic, they've been established, they want to take it to the next level, what, what staff did you have originally? You obviously had yourself as an injector. Did you offer skin services immediately? We did, yes. So we had one dermal therapist when we started, and yeah. I think two part time 
admin girls. Mm-hmm. And John was sort of a bit of the hybrid role, like clinic manager slash answering the phone, booking patients in. Right. I think it was very quickly, I think three or four months in, we hired our second dermal therapist. And at that point, we had a contracted nurse and contracted doctor join us. So we did grow quite quickly in those first few months. Yeah. And then so it was just me as the sole injector initially. Yeah. And, and I think you opened in 2018. So you've scaled. Yes. You know, reasonably quickly or consistently. So, at what point do you go, all right, this is going good. Uh, We're we're ready for number two because, you know, there may be other people in that position. So, how do you justify that financially but also – I mean, initially, we probably didn't have a really set strategy in place. We were sort of seeing how we went. Um, West Perth had sort of built itself itself up to capacity. Um, I was, you know, fully booked months in advance. I'd started to scale back a little bit. We had a really good little injecting team going on. Um, so at that point we were very much like, okay, do we just continue doing this or do we look at the second location? Um, I was pregnant and I was like, okay, I'm going to be stepping back here. Um, let's just start a bit of market research. So we spent a long time analyzing our clients and, you know, um, things like their, their, um, what they did for a profession, um, average income, what postcodes they were from, analyzing where we were seeing our clients from. And we realized with West Perth, we're seeing people from all over. Um, so we tried to, you know, find those gaps in the market where we weren't actually attracting clients, and that's where Claremont came into place, which is in the western suburbs of Perth. We weren't really attracting many clients from that demographic, so um, we sort of started to develop a business plan for plan for clinic number two. Um, signed a lease, and then COVID hit. <laughs> oh, fun times! So that went on the back burner for a little bit. Um, so I mean, it was actually quite interesting timing. I'd had a baby. Um, we're in lockdown, um, really use that time to strategize and plan that second clinic, knowing that we were going to come out of the pandemic eventually um, and the economy would recover. So that was where the second clinic came along. And then going forward, we've, we've got a sort of set strategy in terms of our growth. We've got certain targets and metrics that the clinics need to hit in order for us to then look at the next location. So we, we don't want to scale just for the sake of scaling and for the sake of growing. Um, I think ego could come into play. I think, you know, oh, let's open up more clinics and have the best clinics in all these clinics in every, you know, every shop corner, but it's not about that. We want our clinics to be highly profitable, um, you know, creating a really good culture, ensuring that the team are all really well aligned, and then at that point we can look at opening up new locations, yeah. if that makes sense. So how do you maintain consistency across three locations with so many different providers because – I assume that part of the the youth lab business plan is to ensure that people receive commensurate sort of treatments, no matter who they see um, within yes, your yeah. business model. And when you start scaling, you know one of the inherent challenges of that is how do you how do you scale and maintain without losing something like that magic that you might have had in in, in sort of yeah, site absolutely. one. So how do you? And it's something that we're so mindful of. Yeah. We really, really are. And um, I think prior to our third clinic opening, we really worked to develop our management team and our executive team. So beneath John and I are some really, really talented team members who can manage the day-to-day of the business and allow us to focus on consistency throughout the clinics. Um, I'm very focused on staff training. Um, I commit, you know, considerable amount of hours um, per week to our injectors and our dermal team and that we have monthly catch-ups. We have one-on-one training sessions with me to ensure that we have that consistency through the clinical procedures. Um, we focus a lot on our systems and our protocols through our, you know, our team intranet. So everyone has access to the youth lab way. 
of doing things um, and just keeping our finger on the pulse really, like ensuring that we're in the clinics, we're sort of in, intertwined with the team, that we're touching base with everyone regularly, we have a really strong meeting rhythm to ensure that everyone's on the same page. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the challenges that we've even experienced in our own clinic. Like you've got two separate destinations and, Mm. you know, different staff. Some people joined many years after the first people and Mm. getting that consistency is very difficult. Yeah. 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 I've got so many questions, Kate. I could just hijack this Mm -hmm. whole podcast. Jake's (laughs) like, great. (laughs) No, carry Um, on. You can sit back, have a coffee. Yeah. So my experience is that when you have people within your business that are exceptional at what they do. So they're high, high achievers, they're consistent. You can tell they've got mountains of potential. So you identify these people. And the next challenge is how do you keep them? Because generally people that are that good, right, they're either going to get poached by someone else who's going to recognize that skill and talent and they'll offer uh-huh, them a better uh-huh. deal. And then you're in an awkward position where they've been offered something and then all of a sudden you're in sort of some sort of negotiating war where they kind of feel, yeah, well, hold yeah. on, now you're willing to pay me more? These people, like... It can sort of almost backfire on you in, in that kind of respect mm. or they'll recognize, hey, I'm smarter than this person. I'm can, like, why am I making all this money for them? Why shouldn't I go and do it myself? So that would be my yep. question to you is how do you identify these people? And then what is your mm-hmm. restra- your strategy for retention? Because yep. as I said, high, high achievers and high performers will recognize their worth very quickly and potentially they become do, your competitors. Yeah. And we have a team of A players. Um, yep. I, you know, I, I can you know, yell their praises all day they're just a phenomenal team both our clinical team and our and our front of house team um it's really tough like you know i was one of those people i guess i was probably considered an a player at my previous employment i went and opened up my own clinic so Mm -hmm. it's it's something that it's completely out of our control in terms of the um i guess the business drive of our employees and if if someone wants to open up their own premises one day there's nothing we can necessarily do about it except to offer them an outstanding workplace and an outstanding culture that they don't want to leave Um, we really focus on having a really fun and positive work environment um, fueled by camaraderie and teamwork we we do lots of fun things we have for example we do our company retreat months a year Um, this year we're all staying at the Ritz Carlton for a few days Mm. but we focus a lot on um, you know, the business development, we share our strategies and our growth plans with the team. Um, we're very, very open um, and transparent about that. Um, we do a lot of sort of team building activities, um, working as a team to hit financial targets as well. Um, for example, like one of our quarterly themes last year, I think with the team one um a trip to Palace Cinemas. So we sort of rented out the whole private cinema and mm-hmm. everyone went to the movies and things yeah. like that. So we always make sure there's fun things to do in terms of just the culture of the clinic. In terms of sort of um, mentoring and um, assisting with our, you know, practitioners to ensure that they, they remain A players and that they feel constantly um, empowered and supported and valued, um, I think training is a huge part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they all feel that they can, you know, work with me and they feel mentored by me and that there's always opportunities for growth. Um, as the business grows as well, there is, uh, you know, opportunities to move into things like management um, and more senior roles within the clinic. Um, and we're also looking into potentially as we grow things like profit sharing and partnership yeah. agreements as well. Yeah, I think that's mm. a good idea at some yeah. point um, because, yeah, if people feel like they're part of the success, not only from being an employee but part of some sort of ownership structure or getting a, a, sli- oh, a slice of the pie, yeah. Um, and growing that pie so that everyone can do well out of it is, is sort of an, a concept that I think a lot of medical professionals, not even medical professionals, professionals in general struggle with that concept of being comfortable divvying up that pie in, well, 
the aim is to grow that pie bigger for everyone and to make sure that yes, all those, exactly. those key people... And so we all share in the fruits, Correct, of, yeah. fruits and of our it, labour, basically. It is a paradigm shift for a lot of people, I think, to get their head around that concept. Definitely. Um, and I think as well, I mean, you know, running a business is hard. I yep. think a lot of the time, especially social media, has got a lot to answer for. It makes it yeah. very glamorous, very, very easy. It's not. It's hard work. It's 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 not for everybody either. And there's nothing wrong with being an employee yep. or being a contractor and working for you know working for a clinic and loving what you do and being the best in your job and not focusing on all the hard, ugly stuff that comes with running a business. Um, two episodes ago, David and Cassandra, we sort of looked yep. at your leadership and yep. management and all that kind of stuff. So, mm. when you had your original smaller clinic, smaller team, at what point did you decide actually we now need a brand manager, we need an operations manager, we need a a, a more corporate structure? Yeah, it was it was quite slow. It's um, opening June Gluts sort of led us into the more corporate structure. We had a clinic manager with West Perth and Claremont. Um, and John was sort of um, managing more of the strategic growth strategy, um, profitability of the clinics, and I was medical director. Mm. Um, as we grew to a team of about 20, we realised that we needed a lot more help. We had a marketing um, coordinator in who's since been sort of promoted to that brand manager who controls all of our marketing, our socials, SEO, PR, that sort of thing. We moved into a head office as well at that point just before June Delap. So, you know, we, we work off-site. Um, and then from there, the clinics are sort of functioning as their own little ecosystems. They've got their own managers um, who then answer to our team manager and, and our executive team. So it was a good three, three and a half, four years in with, that we moved on to that more corporate structure. And that was essentially just to support our strategic goals and help us to grow and pull us out of the day-to-day operations of the clinics. And when you got new injectors on, how do you onboard them? Because, of course, you want it youth lab sort of way of doing things like you said so (laughs) unlearn everything you've learned before yeah um our injectors are awesome um we're we're really focusing on our onboarding at the moment actually um we've got a new injector who moved over from brisbane and she's week five or week six at the moment so she with onboarding we we really get them to sort of shadow a lot within the clinics initially to learn our systems um you know, learn the internet, learn our protocols, um, shadow the other injectors and other team members. And I focus a lot on meeting with them one-on-one once a week. Um, we have a you know, good 30 to 60-minute meeting, going over any pertinent things I've learned from the week before, ensuring they're comfortable with certain procedures. I organise all the training, whether that's refreshes with our suppliers. Um, if there's any development areas I need to focus on, we do one-on-one training. I make sure that they're safe and um, you know, deliver the results that we expect. We also talk a lot about our, the values of the company, um, you know, look at, talking about things like core value stories and, um, you know, how they're getting along with team members. And by having that sort of touch point each week with me, we're ensuring that they're sort of getting immersed in the culture of the business and ensuring that they, they're successful in passing their probation period. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, so far it's been really, really effective. And how did you determine your pricing so when you sat down with with your partner and and you sort of spoke about where you want to position yourself in the market what sort of research did you do and how did you come to the the point of like working out where you wanted to go in terms of a pricing model and then also and then also yeah sorry go on no i was i think initially i had my pricing when i was a you know private contractor um i think from memory with our initial pricing structure, lots and lots of market research from all the competitors, um, you know, assessing what, what they were charging. Um, and then we decided to charge a bit more than they were charging basically at that point. Um, 
as we've sort of grown, we're very sort of mindful of, um, you know, maintaining those high standards and higher price points. Um, where we increase our prices every six to 12 months anyway. I think we did our last big price increase in July, June or July this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, it comes from a you know, combination of market research and knowing our value and knowing what we're offering our clients. Um, and we have a bit of a stage structure as well with our injectors too. You know, nurses charge a little bit less than some of the doctors and they charge a little bit less than me. Yeah. I mean, would you agree that most practitioners can do, well, this is a, gen- a general statement. Most practitioners out there who've been injecting for a certain period of time should be able to perform most of these treatments with relative competence, but basic areas. Um, so in terms of charging an extra price, the concept of sort of that value proposition, have you sort mm-hmm. of familiar with that sort of term? And, and sort of, if you are, how did you sort of work out, you know, where you needed to add value to be able to justify the, the, those sort of price points? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, part of the value proposition comes from the client experience that we offer yeah. within the clinics, um, that service that we provide them, the longer appointment times, the clinical imaging we use, the treatment planning that each practitioner is trained in. Um, clients get given written treatment plans every appointment, for example. Um, the amount that we invest in training our team, whether that's one-on-ones with me or whether we bring over trainers from over east and the girls to conferences and so on. So, by being the high, the most skilled team, the best trained team in WA, we can sort of tell our clients, well, you're getting the best possible service here. Yeah. Um, we're, you know, we're very skilled, we're very passionate, we're very, very safe. So yeah. I think clients are generally happy to pay a little bit more. Yeah. And to echo what we were discussing with Michael Kane, yeah, there's Botox and then there's good Botox. Yeah. And sadly, <laughs> our patients think it's all the same. And yeah, sure, yeah. you can go and get one area, two areas at a chain clinic, and I'm sure you'll be fine. But there is a finesse yeah. and there is, you know, the experience does show. And, you know, there are patients walking around with funny faces. We all know that. Mm. So <laughs> it, it's it's hard to sort of maybe differentiate yourself just with a price. Yeah. But I think patients, once they contrast the two, quickly realize, okay, this is why it's more expensive. They just don't yeah, know any better and to start with. And we don't sort of push it or advertise our prices too much. That's price comes second to what can yeah. I offer you? What's your what's your treatment plan? What are your concerns? And what are yeah. we trying to address today? And then price is, is addressed after that. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of the time, you know, the way lots of people come and say, I know you're on more expensive, Kate, but you squeezed me into my aftercare appointment when something went wrong or your team were really, you know, they didn't laugh at me or dismiss me when I had a worry about, you know, some minor concern post-Botox. They, yeah. they just feel really looked after. Yeah. Um, and I think coming from other clinics as well, like a, something that used to frustrate me a lot was, you know, patients are anxious. These procedures are really scary um, and it's not their fault if they have concerns after their treatment. Yeah. And it's not their fault that they associate their cold and flu symptoms that they developed the week post-Botox in, in their mind, that's because of the Botox. So by dismissing these concerns from our patients, we isolate them and potentially, you know, they'll, they'll go elsewhere. So that's something I really focus on is looking after every single person that comes through our door, no matter how silly their concerns are. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a good point, actually. We, you know, as injectors, we do get driven mad by, mm. you know, all of the sorts of questions we get. But, but if you have the time built into your clinic and the facility to field those questions, yeah. Yeah. then it just becomes a, a seamless process. There's a protocol and exactly. you just deal with it. I'd like to ask about, we, this wasn't in the run sheet that I sent you, it's just something that I thought of, this is the way my brain works, Kate, so you'll have to excuse me, I'm all over the place. The consultation process, this is something that 
I think is often just seen as a basic formality and it sort of gets in the way of wanting to do treatment and of, of mm-hmm. doing the treatment. And I don't feel it's given the attention and finesse that's required. So are you able to talk to us about your consultation process and how you train your team to consult people? Because mm-hmm. I think that people that do this really well, in my experience, tend to be the most successful injectors from a financial... Yeah, it's really important. Yeah. I mean, I'm probably out of practice myself. I couldn't tell you the last time I performed a consultation on a new patient. Yeah. <laughs> yep. um, my, my patient's like, hi, here's a coffee. Let's do, yeah. Let's do yeah. the usual. Yeah. Um, so really we focus very much on, you know, we've got quite a lot of screening questions in our new client questionnaires for one thing. Very, very focused on screening for things like body dysmorphia. Um, hugely important. Um, our, you know, lots of the clients will fill in their new client questionnaires prior to coming in so the clinicians have an idea about what they're coming in for. Um, we dedicate, you know, 30, 45 minutes per consultation. Consultations are paid for as well, so the clients come in feeling like they're going to get some sort of value from that consult. Um, con- that includes, things, you know, we take full medical histories. So it is quite formalised in terms of that aspect of the consultation, um, followed by full clinical imagery, which is generally taken at the beginning I really like our nurses to go through patient images during the consultation. So looking at the concerns, you've told me that you you know you want your crown crown treated, but you know what about this asymmetry or you know how does that you know that area make you feel sort of thing. Really trying to tie in the emotions behind these concerns, which I think lots of us you know lots of injectors are trained in anyway. Um, but really working with the patient to sort of um, develop that treatment plan. Um, everything's written down. We provide full quotes, um, full packages, um, full skincare reviews as well. Um, so yeah, it's 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 pretty sort of systemized. Um, every every injector has their way of doing things of as course. well. And I will never sort of try and control our injectors or our yep. dermal therapists to consult in a certain way. They've all got their flares and they attract different clients because of that. Yeah. Essentially, we've got a few sort of key things that are covered in every consult. Yeah, it's like a you've got like a structure there, like a skeletal structure yes, to yes. give people a guide. Yeah. But they're all yeah. they're adding their own nuance and personality and yeah. And, yeah. and we've got sort of the personalised treatment plans that every client receives. Um, you know, and the fact that they're paying for a consultation means that you know we we need to work hard to really make them feel like they're obtaining some sort of value from that consult. Yeah. Even if they don't get treatment on the day. Yeah. Can I ask how you weave the clinical imaging into your, you know, patient journey and consultation mm. in terms of timing and the skill level of the photographer? Because I know you've got Woodrow's Wilson's system, yes. I think, which is yeah. clinical imaging. Guys, if you're listening, we spoke to Woodrow back in episode 90. So we talk about that. But um, yeah, mm-hmm. like it, it's kind of a bone of contention because we know that we want good photos. But if you delegate it to someone else, sometimes you know, the photos aren't as systematic as you'd like. Yeah. So presumably there's yeah, training absolutely. there. And then does the patient come early and do that prior to the consult time starts? Like, How do, how do you juggle all of that? So generally, I mean, West Perth's a bit different. We have a dedicated photography room there. Um, so usually, you know, when we were smaller and a lot quieter, our, you know, our front of house did the photos initially, but now the practitioners do. Mm-hmm. So that's generally at the beginning of the consultation. So they're escorted through to the imaging room, photos are taken. And then we move back into the treatment rooms, the consultations. The other um, two clinics have the inbuilt systems in every treatment room. Yeah. 
So we've got the wall-mounted flash, the the backgrounds and the cameras in every treatment room. So that's just part of the journey. They sit down in their chair, move over to the cameras and back into the consulting space. So it's all very seamless. Do, do you and fi- the practitioners do their own images, yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, I've seen Woodrow System. It's fantastic. But there mm-hmm. is some clunkiness in terms of, you know, new patients, they feel a bit awkward. They're sort of frog-marched to camera. Yep. They, they don't know what's going on. <laughs> we used to have some issues at West Perth, like, why are you taking my photos? Yeah, so um, how, how do you find that works? And seeing the nurse or the practitioner, it's like, you know, hello, my name's Kate. I'm, you know, cosmetic physician. I'll be looking after you today. First things first is that, you know, as part of the medical record, we need to take some before photos and we use it. It's, it's part of the consent process. Yep. So we do formalize it in that way, reassure them like, listen, no, these photos will not see the light of day. You've signed <laughs> your waiver saying they're not for marketing purposes. No one's going to see them. Yeah. And people are generally really happy. We ask people to come make up free to the clinics, which is also a bit daunting for some people. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a little bit of a bone of contention sometimes, but it's part of the process. I, and I explain that to the patients that you don't want me trying to cleanse your face because I've got no idea what I'm doing. Well, how does that work for you? Because I've tried a hundred ways of getting people to come with a clean face and it, it's not working. Like genuinely, it, it's really not. So uh, how- I think we train, our, we train our clients really well. They're pretty good at it. But then, you know, some of them run in after that. Oh, I'm so sorry. I've left my makeup on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we squat into the bathroom and they can, you know, makeup remove things or we just put it in the room. It's not, it's not a huge deal, but Fair for imaging enough. purposes, obviously, we like them fresh-faced. Yes. Well, I mean, we were listening to uh, Ravi Jain and Sophie Schotter last week about Profilo, and they're saying that they've been using it for six years, that their patients now turn up without makeup because their skin's so good. So yeah. They don't need it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just got to sell more Profilo, okay? Yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. Have oh, you, got, have you got, got your hands on it yet? or We, so we I think <laughs> when it launched, we got like 120 boxes. Yeah. yeah. And they disappeared. Out. Then we yep. got 200 in the next white round. That's been allocated. So now we're waiting on our next order, which probably isn't until February, I don't think. Yeah, it's it's tricky. But it's I mean, ridiculous. It's a good question. Right? When you introduce a new service, how do you introduce that to your patients? Because you know, something like Profilo, it's a good example. It's it's, it's quite different in, you know, in its mode of mm. action and the results. So how do you introduce that? Do you do an email blast? Do you just yeah, tell the word of mouth? I think we, we knew Profilo was coming. So we were all talking about it to our clients. Wait for this product. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Put your name on the wait list. So lots of internal marketing. We had a huge wait list well prior to the launch. Um, patient education. So writing a blog post about it, about what biomodeling is. Um, sending an EDM to the client base saying, this is coming. Here's the pro- like launch pricing. Put your name on the like on the waiting list. And then as soon as we got the stock, we were, you know, back to back. Yeah. Now, something I wanted to ask you about was determining your list of services that you offer. And something mm-hmm. that a lot of people in this space struggle with is the concept of trying to be everything to everyone. Yeah. And, you know, we are living in a world now where things are becoming increasingly more specialized and subspecialized. So how did you determine where you were going to you know, exist in the space in terms of um, mm-hmm. offerings and how did you sort of weed out the treatments that you think you didn't want to sort of facilitate through Youth Lab? Yeah, I think, well, I think from the get-go, I was very much an injector. Um, I, you know, I focused on the face and I knew my anatomy, I knew the skin and I really felt passionate about the face. Um, so that's why we started off with just basic facial treatments. Um, treating skin concerns like pigmentation, rosacea, acne was a no-brainer for us. So, you know, we invested in the BBL, which is, to me, the best device on the market. Um, So we had quite a narrow offering from the get-go in terms of just treating the skin, just facial aesthetics, and we sort of stuck to that really. 
um, things like, you know, women's health, um, you know, nutri- you know, skin nutrition, IV therapy, body contouring. We've, we've looked into it. We've, you know, we've run the numbers. But to me, our clinic is successful because we focus on the face and on the skin. Yeah. We deliver what we call aesthetic confidence to our clients um, and that comes from them feeling good within, within having healthy skin and feeling sort of um, empowered about the ageing process. We could easily fit in body contouring, for example, into our clinics, but we're, we're, we're booked up. I, I don't know where we'd find the space to offer it and then I think that's going to then mean that lots of our skin patients can't get appointments. They're going to start, you know, they might go elsewhere, like, so it, it creates a different problem in a way. Yeah. Um, plus, there's huge investments into these technologies, and they're very much commoditized as well. Yep. Um, I think anyone can apply a full sculpting applicator or an M sculpt yep. um, applicator and get the same results. So, me personally, why would I pay double for having that treatment at Youth Lab when I can go down the road to still can get it half price? Yeah, that's true. I'm stealing that yeah. term, by the way, aesthetic confidence. I'm stealing that now, Kate. So, no, yeah. no. <laughs> it, to us, it's true. It's, you know, we can't give someone actual confidence that comes from within, but we can really make them feel confident in how they look and how they present themselves to the world. Um, someone submitted a question, one of our patrons, Sunny. So thanks for the question, Sunny. He wanted to ask, I think you've kind of told me the answer when you were pregnant, but once you get to a point where you're super booked out for months ahead, mm. how do you instill confidence in your patients to say, hey, I've got a, a new injector. You should go and see them and, and get them busy and sort of, you know, build your business internally. Yeah. I think when we, with, with our first clinic, um, we had quite a small injection team. I think there was only four or five of us. Um, and we all worked very closely together. So often during treatments, we'd refer to the other injectors. Um, they'd, our clients would see on social media that, hey, you know, one of the nurses is injecting Dr. Kate. She must trust her, building that trust in the other other injectors mm. and you said very much markets all the other team members over me. So we're not pushing appointments towards Dr. Kate or anything like that. Um, so I think our clients generally felt trust within our team. So my clients felt trust seeing one of the other injectors when I went on leave. Um, which sort of training some of the team members up from scratch, like the real novice injectors, the, the clients saw them day in, day out in the clinic anyway. And so started to build those relationships with them whether that be front of house or whether that be assisting me. So they, you know, they had a name to a face and were happy to sort of see other practitioners. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, it's, it's one of those ones where, I mean, you, you've obviously had new injectors in your mm. businesses many times and, and building them up is is tricky. Yeah, it's it, it's a slow process. It, re- it really is. Yeah. And um, it's, it's, all, it, it's as much about them building confidence in their own abilities as much as mm. it is conveying that to patients that they're competent and skilled. So, it's, yeah. yeah, it is it is challenging. I think it's really important with any sort of new injector, even if they come on board to a business with, you know, four or five years of experience under their belt, it takes time for the new clients to trust them. Yeah. yeah. It's a 12 to 18 month process to build someone's books up. Even if the clinic's really, really busy, it still takes time to build up an individual practitioner's books. Mm. Um, so if someone's wanting to sort of, you know, join a new team or invest, you know, be a part of a new a new clinic. They've just got to be patient and really trust the process that they will get busy, but it takes yeah. time. Yeah, because it's also this concept as, as well that you'll sort of self-select your patients. So you've got a certain mm. personality type, a certain aesthetic, the way that you do treatments. And you might have patients coming in like new, time, new you know, first-time patients and a percentage of those potentially won't resonate with you. They'll go and go somewhere else or they'll see another member exactly. of your team or they'll decide, hey, aesthetic treatments aren't for me in general and they'll sort of pass all together. So there, right. there is that initial quite hard grind for that first two years where you're selecting your patients and they're selecting you. Mm-hmm. But once you've got them dialed in and you're doing your job correctly, then your books should consist, remain consistently exactly. pretty full. 
And what's great about having a large team um, under us is that we've all got such different personalities and yep. different techniques that we can cater to all those different, um, you know, patient base, which is really, really good. And so if I've got, say, an anxious patient who, you know, needs really extended treatment time that I can't necessarily offer them, I know that I've got a few nurses on the team who will really, really gel with them and give them a better result and a better experience than I can. Yeah. So what do you do on a daily basis? So just talk to us about what does a day look like for Dr. Kate because, you know, you've got three clinics, you've got a family, you've got a million staff, you've got patients, you've got – so take us through that. Well, um, every day is different. I'm only – I guess I'm only clinical three days a week at the moment. Mm -hmm. So um, I wake up at 5 a.m. every morning. The team has a bit of a running joke that um, Dr. Kate's doing her email blast at 4.30. So generally <laughs> I get up. It's my quiet time. It's my peaceful time. I, I do my emails and usually I dedicate at least an hour or so to some sort of meaningful work. So usually that's something strategic for the business. One of my quarterly priorities I need to work on, um, looking through the injectors, you know, the numbers and the figures. I still do a lot of the finances in the business. So I sort of had that dedicated time in the morning before chaos reigns and the toddler wakes up. Mm-hmm. And then... And it's generally watching dinosaurs, playing dinosaurs, <laughs> playing airplanes, <laughs> um, bit of family time, daycare drop-off, yeah. exercise. I generally start work about 10, um, usually about seeing clients for, you know, four or five hours or so or meetings at head office. So weekly we have like a strategy meeting with our executive team. It might be marketing meetings, meeting with core suppliers and so on. Um, so yeah, it's, every week's very, very varied. I'm very flexible in my hours as well. I don't work, I guess, full-time hours on the ground, but I'd probably, you know, on the fly in terms of those early starts, late nights, work a significant amount of hours during the week. Yeah. I mean, it's, it never stops, does it? I mean, when you own yeah, your own business, it, it, it never stops. even when you're not it, there. Yeah. Con- we constantly think about the business. Yeah. Um, John and I really try not to take too much work home with us, but it, it infiltrates into our personal lives significantly. Um, but we get a lot of energy out of that too. So we both, you know, I deeply love our business. So talking about it, um, strategizing, um, making plans, it, it's really exciting. I wanted to ask you, just remind me, when I used to work with David, we would have regular catch-ups and also mm-hmm. involving the various reps about, you know, your average toxin use, how many mils of filler mm-hmm. you use this month, what's your preferred brand, why is that? And interrogating all that data, do you do that internally to sort of, you know, support the training and development of your injectors? We do a little bit. I've moved on a bit from that, to be honest, in terms of like lots of the companies were like, here are your sales of this oh, amount yeah. of filler per month, this number of mils. And I'm like, I've, I've moved on from that, I think, well, they just We're want to sell more stuff, results. don't they? They just want to sell more product. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've, I've got great relationships with our suppliers, though, that being said, and we really want to focus on growth in certain areas with some of our suppliers. Um, so, unfortunately, with some of the injectors, it's trying to explain to them that this is still a – we're a business. It's a commercial decision why I decide to stop certain products and yeah. why I might be getting rid of certain products. Um, due to different pricing structures and things like that with the suppliers. Um, but we really do, you know, I analyse our usage. I know exactly how much each of billing and what their average, you know, average dose of toxin filler is um, when we re- work with them to sort of increase that. Yeah. I mean, you, you gave a good example yourself and, and we all do this. You meet your regulars and you're like, oh, same again, copy and paste. And you just yeah, get into this sort of <laughs> rhythm. But, you know, sometimes, you know, we, we've done podcasts where we're talking about a lot about lower face toxin and necks. And there's, there's other mm. areas that you can think of that I've even been guilty of. I just sort of forget. And so and just, you go into a bit of autopilot sometimes. Yeah. So just re-looking yeah. at 
patient's face, even if it's just once a year and being like, okay, what are we doing here? Let, let's not copy yeah. and paste and yeah. upping your average use of toxin, not, not, you know, willy nilly, but because it'll actually give better results as well as financially yes. it'd be better. Mm. So, and yeah. it's been really interesting having some more junior injectors join our team and seeing how they go through the training with some of the suppliers. And I'm learning a lot from that as well, like the dosing, how that's changed over mm, the years. Yeah. And, um, so that's, you know, it affects my practice as well. I always like to get my patients in annually anyway. We refresh their plans and mm. you know, make sure that, you know, they're progressing and they're not sort of just getting the same cheeks and lips and things like that every time. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask, it's not an injector's diary episode, but what are your favourite <laughs> brands or toxins and fillers and why? Uh, we're, we're Allergan aligned primarily. Yeah. Um, that being said, we stopped Galgena and Joxane as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I feel Allergan's probably 80% of our business. Okay. Very, very Botox heavy, huge Botox users. Um, I, I've always loved Vicross is my favourite product, although I'm dabbling a little bit in the RHA range yeah. um, as well at the moment. Mm. So, yeah. I guess, you know, you've got multiple injectors. You, you, you really do mm-hmm. have to have you know everything you, do. you need to cater for them and they've come from different clinics as well and they, people get very comfortable in what they're used to yeah whereas my mindset has always been you know we're injectors we're the practitioner we're, we have these skills so i should be able to replicate results no matter what product i'm using yeah so it's the product plays a part but it's a practitioner so yeah. you know we can open a drawer and grab a syringe of volux or a syringe of on lift and still be able to give very similar results yeah i guess well with that thought in mind have you ever done the uh the exercise of sort of looking at your average toxin use and what it would mean to your business in terms of profit if you were to sort of incorporate other brands. I mean, you just said that you should be able to get the same result with the, with each with any product. So mm. if if it's if it's infinitely more profitable to use we a different, have, absolutely. Yeah. I sort of I pull all the figures from like all the syringes of filler. I know what the gross profit margin for each syringe is and what we sell it for. And then looking at the different tiers for the company, how much we'd be able yeah. to get it for. But we're on a pretty good deal at the moment with, with Allegan. I think we're sort of really pushing to get our rates down even more. Yeah. Um, so financially, that makes the most sense for us. Yeah. So when you're recruiting people for your team, what are you looking for? What are the, what are the obviously, competence and, you, mm-hmm. you know, a certain level of presentation, but what is it that you're looking for if you had a room full of 10 candidates looking for a job at a youth lab clinic? What mm-hmm. are you? What are the X factors that you're looking for? Well, that's a tough question, isn't it? Um, we're we're really focused now in our recruitment of hiring for culture fit. Right. Um, I definitely think the recruitment process is really tough because people do put their best foot forward. Oh. They present the best version of themselves. Um, yeah. And in this, t- you know, the shallow talent pool that we have at the moment, it's really really difficult. Yeah. Um, I I strongly believe that skills and technique and things can be taught and if someone's willing to learn and willing to invest mm-hmm. in their you know in their training and development and you know dismiss all ego and sort of come in with that blank slate then that's the person that we want for youth lab someone who wants to learn um wants to be part of a team um isn't necessarily coming in to you know just work for themselves they want to be around people um i think that's really important yeah you can't teach personality you can teach skills no. yeah and it, no, not everyone has to, and not everyone has to be extroverted or yeah. really outgoing. It's just you know someone who is willing to take feedback, is willing to learn. That that's huge for me. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say I, I can re- I can speak for your recruitment process because when Claire moved to WA and to you guys, your husband called me because I was on mm-hmm. the reference and and we had a chat yeah. about you know Claire. So 
you know, of course, your ref- your references could also be doctored, I guess, and you could put someone who's going to sing yeah. your praises. But, uh, you know, you did your due diligence, which many people don't. Absolutely. You'd be absolutely horrified about the number of people who I've spoken to over the years who don't call references. They just see them on the page yeah. and they go, oh, well, they've put their name down. They must be good. And quite often, <laughs> some, of the, exactly. some of these people don't even know they've been put as references. They don't know the person. that they're. they're it's, it's crazy <laughs> the amount of stuff people will get away with. So what do you do when you've identified someone that needs to go? So if you've got someone within your business that's, <laughs> that's you know, potentially prepared. <laughs> that's, that's how I roll, Kate. Ask the tough questions. Oh, um, how do you, how do you um, go about removing this person from your business? Because from my, my experience, I'll give you a chance to think about it while I tell you my, my perspective, mm-hmm. is that one toxic person can infect your whole team and, yes. and uh, you know, eviscerate a culture. Um, within a very, very short space of time. They'll move like an aggressive cancer through your business. So, I mean, I've always had the policy of hire slowly, fire fast. Um, yep, a very, absolutely. very, very, yep. very sort of um, considered when I'm bringing people on. But if someone's given me enough indicators that they're bad news, I won't hesitate. It's it's a fairly quick execution because <laughs> I understand yeah. I understand what happens if you allow that that behaviour to perpetuate through your business. So, what do you do in that instance and, and sort of where are you getting feedback from and, and, and how do you handle it? Because it is a challenge that a lot of people face and it is difficult. Even if someone's an absolute nightmare, it is hard to take mm. someone's job away from them. So how do you, how do you go about oh, that? And, you know, ensuring that, you know, any performance management or HR issues are done in a really professional yeah. way. We, we do employ an external HR company who assists mm-hmm. with any sort of issues within right. the business. Yeah. Um, and I think with our thorough onboarding process, you know, doing 12 weeks of regular catch-ups, um, you know, in that probation period, we do sort of, uh, you know, recognise issues early mm-hmm. um, and sort of make it very clear to new candidates within the business or new, sorry, sorry, new staff members within the business that, you know, sometimes things don't work out and sometimes people might not be a successful fit within the company and that could be due to just differences in values or whether our work environment which is very very highly you know very driven very high expectations might not be might not be right for everybody um but you know in terms of sort of terminations and everything i think things have to be done very much by the book um to avoid any sort of potential issues with things like their work um Mm -hmm. unfair dismissal claims and things like that um we have been very lucky lucky generally that we've had a really successful team. We've had some sort of unsuccessful fits in, in the past, mm. but they've all moved on to clinics that are better suited for them. Yeah. So to me, I think that's 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 a great outcome. Yeah. Um, because not everyone's going to be on the same page in terms of um, wanting to be on board for Youth Lab. Yeah. Say, you know, we want all the right bums in the right seats on the Youth Lab bus. Yeah. <laughs> Can you share any juicy injector dismissals without giving any uh, confidentiality any, away? Sorry, injector dismissals? Yeah. Oh, in general. We've mm. never, no, we've never had to, we've never had to terminate an injector. Okay. Well, that's good. Um, yeah. We, unfortunately, we've lost, we lost a few staff members with COVID, yeah. um, some of the mandates and things like that, which mm. is really, really, um, which was awful, a very, very stressful time for us. But again, it's, you know, things happen for a reason, I think. And, you know, ultimately we want to build a really, really excellent culture for the people who are within our business now and who are driven to, um, you know, succeed with us in the future. Yeah, I've got a random question. I've just remembered we had Kian Moini on uh, a while ago and in his clinic he's got a signature smell. 
So do you guys have any little nice little touches like that or a a special tea that's, you know, your own brew or anything that like, you know, really makes it feel like a... We're serving our tea with COVID actually. So I need to get back onto the teas. Um, We have a signature stand. We have a signature soundscape that we get designed every quarter. Oh, that's cool. um, External DJ who's one of our ambassadors. External DJ. You know you've made it when you've got an external DJ. (laughs) DJ. Tell us about the smell. Our youth love... Oh, it's just, oh, it's not, well, I didn't design it. It's just a smell I like and all the clinics have it. <laughs> it's just a diffuser scent. Right, okay. Um, bit sort of, no, it sort of it, um, evokes that sense of calm and relaxation within the clinics. It's funny, when you work in the clinic every day, you don't notice it. Yeah, but sometimes forget. when I walk in the front door of one of the clinics, it really hits you. It's really lovely. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we serve beauty boost elixirs after every appointment, mm-hmm. um, things like that. Yeah. So fun little touch points that are consistent throughout the day. What's a beauty booster elixir? Tell me more. What's in that? We use, um, we use the beauty chef. So okay. some of their sort of collagen, um, adaptogen, I think there's hydration. So every week we have a different elixir that the, the clients get when they check out. That's oh, cool. That's very good. I like mm. that. So I've grilled you on lots of difficult questions. I'll ask you some fun questions now, Kate, so you can relax. <laughs> um, let's talk about expansion and exit strategies because mm. that's something that's cool. coming up a lot, um, well, with our Patreons, mentees that I'm talking to, and it just seems to be a concept that's dawning on a lot of people is I'm in this business and how am I going to grow it? And then when I've had enough, how do I get out? So I'm can you talk, out, yeah. talk to us about that? So we, we have plans to expand. Um, we obviously clinic number three this year. Um, next year, our plans are very much to consolidate the three businesses to build them all to full capacity, um, ride out any economic waves that might happen. We mm-hmm. don't know. Um, I feel like the aesthetic space is a very safe space to be in at the moment, um, almost recession-proof business, but we'll wait and see. 2024, we will begin our plans to open up our fourth location, mm-hmm. most likely here within WA. I don't think there's huge room for lots and lots of youth clubs in Western Australia. We're a small market, um, limited population. So I think probably clinic number four will, will cap that off for us. Um, and then from there, we really have, you know, our bigger plans are to scale into state. Mm. So whether that's through acquisition of existing clinics or whether that's going into strategic partnerships with other doctors who may be wanting to go out on their own but don't necessarily have that business accruement who might need our, you know, our marketing support, our executive support um, to start their own clinic under the Youth Lab brand. Certainly not a franchise. We're not here to scale big. Um, John always says um, big is not necessarily better. Better is better. So we want to maintain our standards, um, you know, maintain our position in the market, in the higher higher end of the market um, and do things really slowly and strategically to maintain our culture. So hopefully multiple clinics, you know, in the next, say, five years or so. And then in terms of exiting, it's, it's on our mind. It's not something that we're actively considering at the mm. moment. We're very young. We've got lots of energy, lots of plans for the business, but we sort of built the clinics up in terms of the structure of the different entities so they are sellable businesses. So whether it's, it's you know, going into partnership with some of our existing clinics or whether we build a, you know, a business that someone can then acquire or sell on from there. Um, so, yeah, it's, we've, we've certainly structured it so there's value within the business. Um, that comes from our internal processes, um, our staff training, all of our programs. It's I, I feel like there's definitely value within our business. Yeah. But I'm not willing to let it go yet. Yeah. Well, here's a question. Victoria or New South Wales or somewhere else? 
I, I feel I'm a bit scared of Sydney, to be honest. It's the wild west out there. It's a shark tank, yeah. <laughs> we always thought it could be anywhere. Um, I, Melbourne's probably top of my list, to be honest. Okay. Um, but you never know. There's, you know, Adelaide's beautiful as well. I feel like that could be a bit of a small stepping stone for us. Um, yeah, watch this space. It's, mm. matter just, it's been really tough with COVID because we're so isolated over here. I haven't met anybody new in the last few years, so I need to sort of get back over there and network a little bit start connecting with more people, um, you know, and find those opportunities that way. Yeah. Um, and as well, in, in saying that, that's me moving out of my clinical role within the business as well. So, obviously, you know, there's no value in youth if I'm still working six yep. days a week in a main revenue generator. We'll have to get a, a youth lab jet so you can go across yeah. the country and visit all, of, <laughs> yeah. visit all of your clinics. So, I wanted to ask you, you know, there are a lot of people listening to this or the majority of people listening to this are medical professionals. And it's all very well for me to sit here and sort of lecture people or give my opinions on you need to understand business. But I guess hearing it from someone like you who is a medical professional, you've proven that you can do it, you've done it successfully. So do you have a message or a piece of advice to people listening who are thinking, well, you know, this whole business stuff is, is complicated. It's outside of my wheelhouse. What, what, what would your message to those people be? I think... If it's something that you want to do, I think it's you have you have to go for it and surround yourself with people who are smarter and more skilled than you are. So seek advice. Um, find a, find an excellent accountant. Ensure that you have um, a good bookkeeper, and they're the sort of they're the early foundations of sort of starting up a business. Um, you know, get advice from mentors. You know, network as much as you can. Um, even if it's you know speaking to people from other businesses that aren't necessarily within the health field, you will get a lot of advice and a lot of helpful tips from there. And start slow. There's no need to take over the world straight away. Um, you know, small steps. I think in having a strategy and you know continually you know biting up, biting off those little bites as you go each day, moving forward. It's a it's a long journey and it's a hard journey. Well, yeah. To build on that question, can you tell us about any mistakes that you've made, or what would you do differently if you could do it all again? Um, I'm really I, honestly, I'm really really proud of how we how we've scaled. Um, I think one thing that we've noticed with a, a clinic outside of our, you know, with the third clinic into a different demographic, um, sort of different geographical location as well, is that we don't have to open up as big as we are in the other clinics. You know, you don't necessarily need to be open six days a week. You can start a bit smaller, um, start with a smaller fit out, whether that's just two treatment rooms instead of the four to six treatment rooms and sort of build a bit slower from there. So that's something that we're going to take into account with subsequent clinics. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty proud. I think mistakes and um, challenges in business have all been learning opportunities for us. So I'm glad that we've gone through what we've been through. I'm glad we've gone through COVID and the uncertainties that came with that and, yeah. Fair enough. Um, we did have another listener question. Um, you've got 180 Google reviews, apparently. So, do you? Oh, West Perth, yeah. 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 <laughs> so, do, do you actively sort of send people a link and just, you know, hope that people do it, or do you ask them verbally? H how do you do that? Google reviews are a tough one. Um, West Perth's really come on organically with that 180. I mean, we're five years old, nearly, so it's 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 decent. Yeah. Um, I think Claremont's got like 60, Joondalup's got maybe 15. So they're sort of building very organically. Yeah. I think our clients genuinely really love us and love our services and leave those reviews genuinely. We don't hustle for them. Yeah. We often talk about the Google review strategy and you see some businesses who will post on Instagram saying, leave us a Google review, go into the draw to win X, Y, Z. Yeah. 
But to us, it's always been a bit risky because if you get a potential disgruntled client or something seeing that post, then that's a trigger for them to go and leave a negative review. Correct. So that trade-off between getting the five-star reviews and avoiding negative reviews. So with our practice management system, every client that comes through the door will receive a feedback SMS. They get, you know, how was your experience at Youth Lab today? One or five stars. Please leave a comment. Um, sometimes we get comments from clients that are just so amazing, just they've written paragraphs as to how happy they were with their practitioner and the results. And so they're the clients we might then reach out to or when they're next in clinic, have a chat and go, oh, your comment was so lovely. Would you mind leaving us a Google review? It's very important for our marketing strategy. Yeah. So keeping it really sort of natural, not pushy. Um, a lot of the times it's, you know, the regular clients that have been with us for years who then just might leave one. Yeah, I think that's a nice way of doing it. You know, if you if yeah. you know they've had a positive experience, then if you wouldn't mind, it would really help our business. Yeah. And yeah. Yes. a phone call, or just asking the next time they're in clinic, it's not it's not making it too big a deal or too uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've really enjoyed that chat. We've been grilling Kate for almost an hour and a half, and I've learned a lot. It's great. I mean, I've been in business a long time, but it's always very rewarding and, and informative for me as someone that's constantly a student of the game to, to listen to someone like yourself who's been very successful and obviously quite humble and, and have lots of dreams and aspirations to thank grow you. and succeed into the future. So congratulations and, and thank you. And I'd like to point thank out you. that, you know, Kate is part of our Patreon group and I think that what we're trying to create as a, as a, as a global IA community is to bring in people like Kate um, who have been successful and, and start sharing and pulling our knowledge. And, you know, Jake and I certainly don't have all the answers. I certainly don't. Um, and it's people like you and other people that are joining this movement that we've tried to create um, that is going to help all of us elevate ourselves to the next level. Yeah. Well, do you want to elaborate on, you know, what you understand of our Patreon? I know you've joined fairly recently, but what what, what value do you think a listener might get from it? I think it is it's that sense of community. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, especially the fact that you have that the worldwide reach, like I've seen comments from people in the UK and the US, like it's it's really nice to connect to people who you would never meet otherwise and yeah. to hear, um, you know, whether that's for clinical advice or business advice or any any question that you might be too uncomfortable to ask somebody else, that it's you guys are available to to help with that, um, to help us all grow as not only clinicians but business owners too. It's really exciting that you guys have had that more focus on the business side of things because I've always enjoyed the clinical aspects of um, inside aesthetics. But now even just having these, you know, the four episodes prior to today, I, I've learned so much already, which is really exciting. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's nice to support you because you've put so much work into this. <laughs> so it's finally paying to, off. Just to give a little bit back, it helps to pay back. Otherwise, you know, these things can't last. You can't just do this forever and not, you know, not grow and support it. So, it's you know, your listeners are be supporting you. So, yeah, everyone sign up. Oh, that's Absolutely. really nice. Well, thank, thank you. Yeah. We'd love to see you. And if you come to Sydney, make sure you let us know. We'll definitely have to catch up with yeah, you absolutely. and you and the hubby for, for we'll a beer over, or two. We'll fly over in the jet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> um, if you were interested in finding out more about Patreon, just go to worldwideweb.patreon. So P A T R E O N.com forward slash inside aesthetics. Yeah. You can check it out. Yeah. So not only access to our private WhatsApp groups where people like Kate are, are sort of lurking, but yeah, occasionally might chime in if someone's got a specific question, but we're also starting to do. Well, we've already started our business live Zooms. Yes. You actually renamed them yesterday. What are you calling them now? IA Business Lives. Yeah. By, uh, yeah. And we've actually got one tonight. By the time this comes out, we've already sort of Session two would be out. Session two is tonight, um, which is all about sort of basic financial sort of understanding and getting your head around what is a PL, what is a balance sheet, and why is it important, <laughs> and so on. So we're starting with the basics, and um, 
we'll progress from there. Well, I've I've got a, a plan for my IA injecting lives Ooh, for next nice. year. Excellent. I think I'm going to start with how to get into using ultrasound and what's it all about. Nice but from a very start. practical perspective, yeah. we've done a podcast on that, but this is more visual and, and a bit of basic physics and stuff. Yeah, oh, exciting. So oh. yeah, so that should be good. Um, so thank you again, Kate. We really appreciate your time. And um, yeah, if you do come this way, let us know. We'll take you out for thank dinner. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank it's you. Pleasure. Thank All right. You. Speak to you soon. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Using the link in our Instagram profile, you can easily email us, text us, apply to be a guest on the show, follow our personal accounts on Instagram, and even show your love and support us on Patreon. 